Welcome to the Strong AF Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natasha Barnes. I'm a strength and rehab coach for climbers, and I blend my 24 years of expertise and experience as an elite level climber, competitive power lifter, and rehab professional to bring you a podcast that will help you become stronger and more resilient. In this podcast, we'll talk about all things strength training for climbers. We'll also talk about climbing injuries, rehab, and why training and rehab go hand in hand. To connect, be sure to follow me over on Instagram at Natasha Barnes. To find out more about coaching or getting help with an injury, check out my website at natashabarnesrehab.com. And now let's get to the episode. Welcome to episode eight. Many climbers seem to be haunted by the idea that they need to correct their posture and or correct muscle imbalances. They believe that correcting these things would help relieve pain, prevent injury, or increase their performance. Can you relate? This is probably something you've been told before or that you've heard before. I used to believe this was true myself until only a few years ago. It's how I was trained as a chiropractor until I did further research and education after graduating and realized these things were just not supported by research. I learned a lot more about pain science, posture, injury, and what the current scientific literature says about these topics. It was the reason I pivoted my practice. In this episode, I'm going to discuss my current understanding of muscle imbalances and posture as it relates to pain and injury, and I'm going to back it up with some science. I made a post on Instagram this week discussing a popular topic, antagonist training. It's kind of a niche topic in that no other sport really talks about this idea of antagonist training outside of their sport or just at all in general. I'm not sure where this idea originally came from or who popularized it, but it's a term that I've really only seen used by climbers. The reason I made the post was because I saw Tyler Nelson make a post about how training pressing movements, specifically ones that target the pectoral muscles, aren't antagonist training for climbers because specifically the upper pec fibers of the pectoral muscle are the first to contract when initiating a pull-up movement. Training something like a bench press is not actually a movement that opposes pulling, it helps facilitate it. That was the premise of his post. I made a comment on it saying that I know it's a lot of our, and by our, I mean a lot of climbing rehab professionals and coaches, pet peeves, that climbers refer to selecting training exercises by using this concept of training antagonists. The theory being that if you don't train your antagonist muscles outside of climbing, you'll develop a muscle imbalance. And if you develop a muscle imbalance, that can lead to pain, injury, or a reduction in performance. This isn't totally accurate. Here are some common statements that I hear from climbers. Climbing requires a lot of pulling, therefore I should train pushing because if I'm doing a lot of pulling in climbing, I am probably developing an imbalance in my pushing muscles. Or climbing requires a lot of finger flexion, therefore I need to train finger extension so that I don't develop an imbalance in my forearms by overtraining my flexors and undertraining my extensors. First of all, when you're flexing your fingers to hold on, your finger flexors are active, but your finger extensors are also active to stabilize the movement. Outside of actual nerve injuries, muscles don't turn off and stop working. 
The antagonist muscles don't shut off when the agonist is contracting. They work in concert with each other with different roles, concentric, eccentric, isometric, for certain muscles during different movements. So it's not like only finger flexors are getting worked when you climb and your extensors aren't getting any work. Outside of very specific situations, muscle imbalances do not equal pain slash injury or a reduction in performance. In fact, they can be an adaptation to sport. We see this in many sports, including baseball, tennis, rowing, volleyball, climbing, for example. One really extreme example of this is a powerlifting athlete named Lamar Gant, who is the American world record holding powerlifter with idiopathic scoliosis. He has a huge curve in his spine. He has deadlifted 364 pounds at 123 pounds body weight. That's 286.6 kg at 55.8 kg body weight. This is an all-time world record, and it was done by somebody who has a significant curve in his spine, which you would think would create some imbalances, but it doesn't seem to hold him back from performing extremely well, and he also doesn't have a back injury. We have more and more evidence emerging that posture and imbalances can be an adaptation to sport in climbers. I reference a study on my Instagram post that was titled, Strength Profiles of Rotators in Healthy Sport Climbers and Non-Climbers. What this study found was that climbers have different ratios of internal and external strength in their rotator cuff muscles than non-climbers. Much stronger internal rotation than external rotation. And these were due to training-induced changes. Keep in mind, these were healthy climbers, climbers who did not have shoulder pain. So we can't really say from this study that having an imbalance in your rotator cuff muscles is going to cause an injury or is correlated with injury or pain or that your shoulder's unstable because of it because these climbers did not have any pain. Pain is complex, but typically injuries happen when load or demands exceed tissue capacity, either acutely or over time as in like an overuse injury. Injuries are dosage problems. They're not because you didn't have the perfect push-pull ratio or because your left arm is stronger than your right arm by 5%. So when does symmetry matter? Here are some situations where symmetry and muscle imbalances can matter. Number one, significant muscle injuries like a hamstring, quad, biceps, or Achilles rupture. When you injure those muscles, we want to make sure that they get as strong as they used to be. And the only measure we have of that is the uninjured side. So ideally, we want that to be probably at least 90% of the uninjured side at the end of rehab, if not more than that, is probably a good rule of thumb there. So that's where we can say like, okay, if you have a significant weakness on the side where the tear was, we probably want to catch that up and get it pretty close to what the other side is. Number two, nerve injuries. Nerve injuries that present with motor weakness, specifically like spinal cord injuries or significant symptomatic disc herniations. Now, don't get me wrong here. Disc herniations can be very normal in a high percentage of the population. 
what I'm talking about here is significant symptomatic disc herniations that are actually pushing on the spinal cord or pushing on a nerve and you're getting motor weakness as in your foot stops working or your hand stops working or something like that. We definitely want to try to return the affected limb and get it as strong as the unaffected limb towards the end of rehab would be a goal. Number three, post-surgical situations where you have to be immobilized for long periods of time, like an ACL repair, where we have really strong evidence showing that if we don't restore limb symmetry index to at least 90%, it has been shown that you have an increase of re-injury by up to four times. So that's a situation where we have really strong scientific evidence to show that the repair side needs to be at least 90% of the non-repair side if we want you to return to sport and if we want to reduce your risk of re-tear or re-injury. These are the situations where sometimes symmetry can matter or imbalance can matter. You being able to row 10 more pounds than you can bench press isn't a problem. You being able to do split squats with five more pounds on one side versus the other side is not a problem. Noticing that one hand is five to 10% stronger than the other hand when you're using a no hang device like a tension block or something similar is not a big deal. So what's the conclusion here? Instead of selecting exercises to put in your training program based on the idea that they oppose certain movements or muscle groups in our sport, Select exercises that help you, one, produce more force or build strength. Two, select exercises that help you build work capacity. Three, select exercises that help you build tissue tolerance in the muscles, tendons, and ligaments involved in the sport. It doesn't have to look like climbing, and it doesn't have to look like the opposite of climbing. The best way to prevent injury in climbing is to build strength, and capacity to tolerate the forces that you're going to experience in your sport, which is climbing, and to manage your training load appropriately. For climbers, this means training all of the muscles in the upper body and managing climbing volume and intensity to keep it within your tolerance. Because in climbing, we use all of our muscles, not just some of them. If you want to learn more about picking effective exercises to support your climbing, listen to episode four of this podcast, where we go over that and a few other things like rep and set guidelines and basic program structure. One more thing I want to mention in regards to what was just talked about is that another situation where we might want to add a exercise into your training program or into even like a rehab program is if there's a tendinopathy. If you have a tendinopathy, then it does make sense to add an exercise or an isolation exercise that will target that specific tendon that you're feeling pain in. So an example of that is when people have elbow pain. So think about not golfer's elbow, but think about tennis elbow, which is pain on the outside of the elbow. Pain on the outside of the elbow is basically a finger extensor tendinopathy most of the time. And so then it does make sense to add an exercise into your program to address that specific tendon. But 
What I don't want you to think is that you developed that extensor tendinopathy because you were using your flexor tendons too much. That's not really how it works. The reason you develop tendinopathy is because typically you're doing more volume than you can currently tolerate. And that's why the tendon starts to become painful. It's not because of a muscle imbalance. It's not because your flexor tendons are too strong compared to your extensor tendons. It's not really why it happens. Your extensor tendons are actually working pretty hard, um, possibly harder than your flexor tendons because they're contracting isometrically and eccentrically to control grip and control wrist position. So it could be argued that that muscle specifically is working a little bit harder than your flex flexor tendons because of the type of contraction that's happening. And so that can be why you're having extensor pain and not flexor tendon pain. Not to go too deep into that, but just wanted to mention that as a situation where training that area might also be helpful, but it's not because of muscle imbalances typically. It's also just a dosage issue, a workload management issue, not managing your volume or your intensity very well in your climbing sessions. Go ahead and check out that post on my Instagram feed if you want to read more about that. And if you have any questions, feel free to leave a question on that post directly or DM me on Instagram. I've been saying on these podcasts that you can ask me a question directly on Spotify, but I'm realizing that Spotify doesn't actually allow me to respond to you there. So I either have to write down the questions that you guys are sending, or I can just share it to the episode, which then other people can see it. Um, so the better way to ask a question is probably going to be to hit me up on Instagram or uh, shoot me an email and ask that question there. That's not the only thing that I want to talk about though today. I also wanted to bring up the topic of posture because it's also related to this whole muscle imbalance idea and antagonist training idea. So I wanted to talk a bit about posture because a lot of climbers come to me with concerns about their posture or having gone to another rehab professional who told them that their posture was part of why they are experiencing pain or, um, or injury. So I wanted to talk about that. The first thing I want to talk about when it comes to posture is what is normal posture? Do we have a normal? Posture can be defined as the positions in which you hold your body while standing or sitting. It usually refers to a static position. Many people have an idea in their head about what ideal posture is. A tall, erect posture with shoulders back and a straight spine. The reality is we don't seem to have a consensus for normal posture in the scientific literature. There's a lot of variance within the asymptomatic population, so it's hard to say which postures are good and which postures are bad. There are people with what some people might consider poor posture that have no pain, and there are people with quote-unquote good posture that do have pain and vice versa. So it's really hard for us to look at posture and blame the posture for pain because we don't have strong evidence that the way that you hold yourself is correlated to pain or injury. I'm going to recommend that you check out a video about posture from another chiropractor and researcher named Greg Lehman. 
he has a video called Perfect Posture Doesn't Exist. And of course, I can't play that video for you here because we're talking on a podcast, but I will leave that video linked in the show notes so that you can watch it. So as you can see, if we can't decide what normal is, then how do we know what bad is? The truth is we don't. Regardless of that, there's still information out there attempting to describe what bad posture is. The most common example of quote unquote poor posture is something called upper cross syndrome. And it was named by a Czech doctor and researcher named Vladimir Honda. And if you went to physical therapy school or chiropractic school, um, or possibly even massage school, you, you may have heard of this person. Upper cross syndrome describes the classic forward head posture, rounded upper back, forward shoulders. You know, imagine essentially what climber posture is defined as. We all know what that looks like. The cause of upper cross syndrome and quote unquote poor posture in general are commonly thought to be muscle imbalances that cause alignment and asymmetry problems. What's typically described is short, tight muscles pulling on longer, weak ones, causing changes in the position of your upper back, neck, and shoulder blades. The consequences of these changes are often said to be an increased chance of pain and injury. Here's the problem. While it may sound like a logical idea, it did to me when I went to chiropractic school, the problem is there is no good scientific evidence to support ideas like climber posture or upper cross syndrome. There's actually a lot of research showing that posture, muscle imbalances, and asymmetries don't seem to correlate with injury or pain. Even if they did, we have evidence that when assessing posture and asymmetries, practitioners have a very hard time agreeing on what exactly is wrong. This is something called inter-rater reliability. Inter-rater reliability is very low for these tests and assessments, meaning if you go to five different people to have your posture assessed, you'll likely get five different takes on what's wrong. Or if you have five different people assess your scapular mobility or your shoulder blade mobility, you're going to get five different takes on what's actually wrong. Doesn't that seem problematic? Here's a thought experiment involving scapular position or movement. Um, your scapula is your shoulder blade. That's the technical term for shoulder blade. There was a study that asked, are clinicians more likely to detect scapular dyskinesis in a person presenting with shoulder pain because they know they have pain? This is what happens daily in rehab clinics all over the world. So Plummer et al. 2017 set out to answer this question. The experiment involved both blinded, meaning they were unaware if the person had shoulder pain or not, and unblinded, meaning they were aware if the person had shoulder pain or not, assessors, and measured whether there was a difference in the reporting of scapular dyskinesia between the two groups. The results, clinicians display confirmation bias when reporting on the presence or absence of scapular dyskinesis and people with known shoulder pain. We are far less objective than we think we are, and we see what we want to see. This study 
captures this pretty eloquently eloquently and um you know the confirmation bias was displayed by experienced clinicians this raises obvious questions of validity and reliability of visual observation on scapular kinesis sorry scapular dyskinesis that means if people know you have shoulder pain they're more likely to diagnose a problem so the next question is you know, even if we had a good definition for what right and wrong posture is or good and bad posture is um, or good and what scapular dyskinesis is and what it isn't, even if we were good at detecting it and the inter-rater reliability was good, can we even correct a posture is the next question. Even if we could define good versus bad posture, and reliably identify it, can we correct it is basically what I'm asking. Your posture is likely an adaptation to deeply ingrained postural habits that have been developed over years and decades, as well as to the demands of regular climbing practice. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of reliable data showing that we can effectively change posture via commonly prescribed stretching and strengthening exercises. In fact, there's some data to the contrary. Climber posture might actually just be normal. Even with the limited research we have within our sport of climbing, it seems like muscle imbalances and climber posture may just be an adaptation to the training demands of climbing. In 2014, a small climbing specific study was done to assess the posture of rock climbers and the factors contributing to changing the shape of curvature of the spine in the sagittal plane. So talking about that like that hunchback, that forward shoulder position, that thoracic kyphosis that people talk about. The study group consisted of 58 male subjects with a mean age of 24. They were divided into two groups. Group one was men who had been climbing for at least two years. They had 27 subjects in that group. Group two was men who did not practice the sport, 31 subjects. Subjects with a history of either previous spine injury or diagnosed postural defects or those who were practicing other sports at least six hours a week were excluded from the study. The climber's skill level varies from beginner, about 48% of them were beginners, and about 52% of them were professional level, or what they were defining as professional level in this study. The study showed a significant relationship between the level of climbing and the shape of the thoracic curvature, so your upper back spine curvature. The harder the subjects climbed, the more of a thoracic curve they had. There seemed to be a strong correlation between the duration and intensity of training and the degree of thoracic curvature. The study concluded that the practice of rock climbing seemed to contribute to changes in posture in the form of increased thoracic kyphosis or climber's back as it's termed in the study. I think a lot of people call it climber's back, climber's posture. Given this information, it's likely that the development of climber's back or climber's posture is simply an adaptation to imposed demands of climbing. Postural adaptations due to the demands of sport have been confirmed in studies in other sports as well, such as rowing, volleyball, cycling, baseball, all of these sports and more show that there are physiological changes that happen, postural changes, tendon changes, bone changes that happen 
as a result of the demands of the sport. And they're not a bad thing. They're just part of the sport. And we see them in people who don't have any pain and who are not injured. Another question is, or another thing that we want to consider is posture and how it relates to shoulder pain. So a lot of my clients have come to me saying that another rehab professional told them that they were having shoulder pain or elbow pain or something like that. And it was due to their posture, specifically shoulder pain is the one that gets blamed a lot of times. Shoulder injuries account for about 17% of all climbing injuries, according to a 2018 research review. These injuries are often blamed on climber posture, which consists of that upper, that upper back rounding or that thoracic kyphosis. But according to the research, thoracic kyphosis does not seem to be an important contributor to the development of shoulder pain. So we can't really blame your shoulder pain on posture because it doesn't really look like it's correlated when we actually look at the research. So then a final question here is, should you even worry about your posture knowing what you know now? Despite a lot of claims that bad posture causes pain, pain of all kinds like neck pain, back pain, hip pain, knee pain, headaches, shoulder pain, we actually see no difference in pain level in any posture type when we look at the totality of evidence. So when we look at the preponderance or all of the studies that we have on posture as it relates to this kind of pain, we don't really see that there's a correlation. If posture doesn't correlate well to pain or injury, and it can't be reliably measured, and it can't be corrected like we just talked about, and it's just an adaptation to impose demand, do we really need to worry about that? Probably not. Worrying about your posture honestly probably causes more harm than good. If a therapist tells you that you have a postural dysfunction, that you need to change your posture or something like that, that has the potential to cause harm via something called the nocebo effect, which is basically the opposite of the placebo effect. It's where a negative expectation occurs. With placebo, it's a positive expectation that occurs. Take this pill, you'll feel better. It's actually just a sugar pill, but you still feel better. With the nocebo, it's like I tell you that posture is causing your pain. You worry about your posture and you actually get pain because you're worried about your posture. You can start experiencing pain that is caused simply by the belief that something is wrong. And if you don't believe me on that, go listen to the last episode on pain that we talked about because I gave a bunch of examples about how much control we actually have over our experience of pain and it has a lot to do with our beliefs around pain and our expectations around pain. Our mind is pretty powerful when it comes to pain. If you believe slouching all day in front of the computer is bad and you expect that it will cause pain, there's a possibility that you'll experience pain due to just your expectation of it or if you're already having pain there it could make it worse because now you're thinking about that. As a therapist, as a rehab professional, I believe that it can be problematic um, to call out unsubstantiated postural dysfunctions. I don't think it's important to tell people that they have bad posture and try to correct it. Um, and I don't think it's supported by the research based on everything that I just told you about. Um, it can really drive beliefs about general vulnerability and fragility. And it often causes people to become hypervigilant about posture, postural hypochondriacs, if you will. Um, 
you know, don't get it twisted though. When it comes to posture, there are still positions that can hurt. They're not the same for everybody. And there's still no ideal posture that guarantees being pain-free. So while we don't need to be giving people advice on what posture they should be using or any kind of postural assessments, it's important to know that there still can be aggravating positions, positions that people find are uncomfortable. The best advice for this is to just change positions. For some people, sitting more upright can feel more comfortable. For others, slouching can feel more comfortable. It's more about changing positions or changing positions frequently because what you're experiencing is more about positional sensitivity than it is about you have bad posture and your posture needs to be corrected. The best posture is a comfortable posture. If you have pain, change positions. If you don't have pain, don't worry about it. We have to change our attitude towards posture. As demonstrated earlier, negative beliefs and expectations can lead to pain. Listen to the last episode. Trust me, there's a lot of really good examples in there. Beliefs about pain are strongly associated with disability. The more negative your beliefs are, the higher your risk of disability. So what's the TLDR? Well, you're already here, so you listen to the podcast. But basically, ideal posture doesn't exist. Posture doesn't correlate well with pain or injury. Posture can't be reliably measured or corrected. Posture in athletes may just be an adaptation to the imposed demands of sport. So let's stop worrying about posture. Something hurts, move. If you have pain or injury that is sensitive to certain positions or certain postures, sometimes that happens. It doesn't mean that posture is wrong. It just means that you probably need to adopt a different strategy for a period of time until things are feeling a little bit better. Why do so many therapists still try to correct posture? Well, many therapists have a bias towards structuralism and the biomedical model. Since we were taught this way in school, and it makes logical sense, um, many are just ignorant of what the current research says on the topic of pain and posture. I definitely used to have a bias because I studied at a chiropractic college and for some people, once you get out of college, you stop learning and you just stick to what you know and you don't update your priors and you continue dispensing outdated information that we learned in school. Unfortunately, a lot of the information that we learn in chiropractic school, physical therapy school, massage school is outdated according to the current literature. Um, for some people, it could be a sunk cost fallacy that can also be a contributing factor here. If you invested a like 225k into a chiropractic or physical therapy education that reinforces the biomedical model, it can be hard to stop doing what you've been taught and spend more time and possibly money re-educating yourself and completely changing the way you practice. Upton Sinclair, the author, has a pretty good quote that could go right here. And it is, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his job depends on not understanding it. It can be hard to get therapists away from structuralism when their job is based on attempting to identify and correct dysfunctions and asymmetries. And this is how they're getting paid by insurance companies and by their clients. This is, you know, this is how I was trained as a chiropractor. 
as a chiropractor, you're trained to look at posture. You're trained to look for, you know, spinal misalignments. You're trained to adjust people and like, quote unquote, put their spine back in alignment. But it turns out that that's not really a thing that you can do. And definitely, like, if you've ever had a chiropractic adjustment or you go to a chiropractor and you like it, it makes sense. Um, that stuff can definitely temporarily help relieve symptoms and it feels good for sure. But it's not actually putting bones back into place. If it was that easy to put bones back into place, football players would be getting paralyzed. <laughs> I would be, you know, changing my spine by squatting 340 pounds on my back on a on a metal on a thin metal bar on my spine that would probably do something to me but it doesn't so while those things can be helpful they're probably not helpful for the reasons that we think they are and there's nothing wrong with you know going to a chiropractor or um, getting a massage but I think that sometimes the narrative that goes with these things is important because this is something that I started feeling like was a problem when I was training, when I was practicing like a chiropractor, um, where I was still doing spinal adjustments and soft tissue therapy, I started to realize that my patients relied on me. Like a lot of times people would come in, they wouldn't do their rehab because they know like, hey, if I just go in and I get my back cracked and Natasha works on me, like I feel better. And everybody would come in and just be like, yeah, I just see my, like, my back cracked. I just need my, I used to call myself a crack dealer. I was a crack dealer, chiropractic joke. <laughs> I was people's crack dealer because I really was like, they would come in for their monthly adjustment, their weekly adjustment, whatever it was. And of course it felt good and <clears throat> it helped them feel better, but it wasn't a long-term solution for the pain that people were experiencing or what they were dealing with. You know, I can't, there's no way a back adjustment is going to reverse the effects of you climbing way too much or climbing way too much volume. That's just not going to happen. And, you know, as you know, from the last episode, there's so many different things that can contribute to why you have pain. And for sure, like biomechanics can be part of that. But there's a lot more that goes into it. Um, thoughts, beliefs, expectations, stress, nutrition, sleep, training, all kinds of things that contribute to why you have pain and just attempting to correct someone's posture is not the complete picture. So I think that's really important to understand. And, um, you know, a lot of times confirmation bias is a thing here and can also be a problem. And if you're looking for postural problems and asymmetries, confirmation bias says you're likely to find them. So food for thought there. My goal with this episode is to help other people actually be less afraid of their own bodies. As a professional climber, I spent a lot of time dealing with injuries before going to school and during school. And I was told and strongly believed that they were due to postural problems and muscle imbalances. I constantly felt guilty for not fixing my posture. And I felt weak because I, I thought I had severe muscle imbalances. In fact, my first job as a chiropractor, I remember standing there in between patients at the front desk and one of the physical therapists was standing across from me and looking at me and he came over and he was like, do you have neck pain? And I was like, no, why? 
And he was like, wow, your posture is horrible. Like you have like forward neck posture. And he, you know, he like basically gave me an assessment of (laughs) what he thought about my posture. And I was mortified because I was a chiropractor. I graduated from chiropractic school. I was Dr. Natasha Barnes. I was somebody who was supposed to be an authority on posture. And here I am standing in my office with like noticeably bad posture. I was so embarrassed. Um, And it led to a lot of guilt and it led to a lot of me trying to work on this stuff fruitlessly. So foam rolling, lacrosse bowling, um, doing all the usual PT exercises, like some of that stuff helped a little bit with like symptoms, but I never got any stronger and I, it didn't really seem to like fix any imbalances or postural issues that I thought I had. Um, and it didn't fix me to the point where I felt like I could climb at a high level. Again, I still had shoulder pain and, and stuff like that. So I was convinced that my upper back and my shoulder pain that I had was due to a stiff thoracic spine because of what I learned and that it was caused by my posture. So I would spend inordinate amounts of time mobilizing my thoracic spine. And let me tell you right now, I am someone who is hyper mobile. I score very high on the bait and scale. And at first I could barely tolerate the lacrosse ball in my back, but eventually I worked up to rolling on it by laying on the floor with a 45 pound plate on my chest. Or I would have like a friend push down on me as hard as they could while I was like laying on the lacrosse ball or like a double lacrosse ball to like mobilize my thoracic spine. And I ended up causing an injury to my upper back in my quest to unlock my thoracic mobility. Um, In actuality, I had plenty of thoracic mobility. It just like quote unquote felt tight and it was just the wrong thing to worry about. Through further education and through actual strength training, I was able to resolve my injuries without working on my posture or my mobility um, or even considering my scapular mechanics because let's be honest, in climbing, it's really hard to do that. Like it's one thing to do with your weightlifting because you're doing the same movements over and over and over again. With climbing, it's so highly variable. You're always in a slightly different position or doing a slightly different movement and it's affected by the angle of the wall, the, the holds, the positions, It's affected by so many things. And let's be honest, there's always going to be some move in climbing where you have to get into like a quote unquote shitty position for your shoulder and no amount of like properly moving or holding your shoulder blade is going to be helpful. Um, It all comes down to being strong enough to tolerate the move and having like the capacity or the tissue tolerance to tolerate those positions. I see a lot of you in my rehab and my coaching practice that are just haunted by the same worries that I had. And I wanted to make sure that you aren't nocebo'd, that you don't feel scared of your body. You don't feel broken. Um, I don't want you to fall into some of the same traps that I did. I'd rather help you focus on the things that really matter, um, which is part of why I practice the way that I practice. It's, it's why I have my Instagram content the way I have my Instagram content and it is why I do this podcast so that's all I have to say for now about posture and muscle imbalances I will put some relevant links in the show notes for you guys Um, like I said go back and listen to episode seven because that definitely plays into some of what we're talking about here 
And if you're someone who struggles with this, if you're somebody who has an injury or pain, or you've been told that there's something wrong with your posture, reach out to me. I'd love to help you. If you'd like some help with that, book in a consultation with me. You can do that in the show notes or in the link in my bio on Instagram, and I would be happy to help you and would also be happy to explain or answer any questions that you have about what's going on with you. Um, if you guys just have general questions for the podcast or general questions about this episode, send me a DM on Instagram, email me with your question, and I'd be happy to get back to you. Um, or I'd be happy to answer your question on another podcast episode. And actually, I'm thinking about um, doing a listener Q&A episode soon. So if that's something that you would be interested in, let me know. Um, if you want help with strength training, you know that I have my foundational strength training program that you guys can join. And I also have the content on my Instagram that you guys can check out and other podcasts here on this podcast that you can listen to. So I also did a podcast that was sort of related to this and the last episode on the Power Company Climbing podcast a while back. So you can also look for that one. That's a great one to listen to as well. But that's the end of the episode. So thank you all for listening and I will catch you on the next one.